Turn with me, please, this morning to Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament scriptures, continuing our studies in this great book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, this morning. And I will read verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4. If you ever come and forgot your Bible or, or don't own one, keep Bibles there in the pew, the rack right in front of you or underneath, depending on what you're, where you're sitting. So if you ever need one, please take one of those, keep it, we'll replace it, and uh, I want you to have God's Word. But Romans chapter 4, let me read for us verses 1 through 12. What then shall we say that Abraham... Our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, give us your help this morning to hear, to heed your word, to be not hearers only, but doers as well. May Christ be central to our consideration this morning, and Spirit of God be our teacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how should we characterize someone like Abraham? Is he a good guy or a bad guy? You see, on the one hand, Abraham's life exemplifies faith and obedience. He leaves his homeland and his family at the call of God. He bravely goes to war in order to rescue his nephew, Lot. He gives the better part of Canaan to that nephew because he trusts God's promises. And he believes God's promise to give him a son, and not only that, He then is ready to offer that son as a sacrifice at the command of God because he believes that God can even raise his son from the dead. That's an impressive resume. But on the other hand, Abraham's life also contains many stumbles and 
failures. He leaves the promised land for a season because there's no food. He lies about his wife's identity and allows her to be taken by another man to save his own skin twice. He agrees to a scheme born of unbelief to have a son by means of his wife's maid. And that leads to generations of conflict. And he laughs when God promises him a son in his old age. So if you had to score Abraham's story, well, what might the final assessment be? Well, many Jews in Paul's day answered that question by appealing to Abraham's obedience. They emphasized what he did. I mean, listen to some of these statements. These are from various Jewish writings. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Abraham did not sin against thee. No one has been found like Abraham in glory. That's from three different Jewish writings that would have been current at the time of Jesus. And Paul, for Paul's fellow countrymen, Abraham was the textbook example of obedience. And he obtained righteousness. He obtained God's promises because of his obedience. Now you may ask, well, how could anyone make those statements? I mean, just read the Old Testament, some of the things we just rehearsed. It doesn't mince words about Abraham's sin. No, it doesn't. And I don't think anybody would have denied that. But it gives so many examples of his obedience. And the judgment call at the time was to interpret his faith in view of his obedience. Since he faithfully obeyed God, since he was circumcised, since he offered Isaac as a sacrifice, that became the controlling lens. They put that pair of glasses on when they read about Abraham's faith. And so his faith was subordinated to the larger idea of his obedience. And what I would suggest today, and this is what Paul suggests in our passage, is that there is another way of reading Abraham's story. And rather than reading Abraham's story through the lenses of his obedience, or even through the lenses of his sin. We should view Abraham's story through the lens of the gospel, through the response of faith that Abraham made to God's promises. And if you put that pair of glasses on when you read Abraham's story, it will teach you how to think about your own story, how to think about your obedience, how to think about your sin, and how to think about your standing in Christ. So let's give our attention to this passage today, which shows us how to read your story through the lens of the gospel. And it gives us three directions, three reading strategies, we could say. First, do not boast about your deeds. Do not boast about your deeds. Verse 1, Paul asks a question here, and this sets the tone for the whole passage, really for all of chapter 4, but we can't preach the whole chapter today. But he asks, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Paul is basically picking up where he put off at the end of chapter 3. That's the passage we examined last week. Remember, Paul made three main points, also answering questions there, possible objections. And he argued that faith excludes boasting. 
That faith upholds the goal of God's law. And that faith creates a worldwide family composed of Jews and Gentiles. Now, friends, we read that. We're Christians. We're used to hearing that. But those are heavy statements. They sent shockwaves through God's covenant people. And so Paul knows he's got a lot of work left to do if he's going to convince people of this gospel. He needs to show that his story, his telling of the gospel, he needs to show that the story of Abraham actually supports these ideas. Because again, Paul knows for many of his contemporaries, Abraham would support the idea of justification through obedience or some mixture of faith and obedience, if Paul can show that Abraham is actually on his side in this debate over the role of works and salvation, well, that will go a long way to proving the faithfulness of his gospel and proving that it's consistent with the Old Testament. So here's Paul's first argument in verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. Paul is saying, you know, if we can find anyone that could boast in their obedience, it would be Abraham. I mean, he went up Mount Moriah, friends, ready to sacrifice the beloved son he had waited years to obtain. Years of waiting for something, years of scheming for something, years of finally having to trust God and wait on God to give him what he wanted, and now God wants it back. And we read in that story that Isaac carried the wood, so he's probably not a small child. Abraham had enjoyed years with his son. He loved his son. And God has asked him to sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham obeys Now, surely, if we were going to appeal to works, that is the moment. That's the decisive moment when Abraham obtains righteousness, but not according to the book of Genesis, particularly Genesis 15.6, which Paul cites here in verse 3. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. According to the witness of the Old Testament, Abraham obtained a right standing with God when he believed God's promises. God made him a promise there in Genesis 15. One day you will have a son. And not only that, your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. And in that passage, Abraham does not laugh. Instead, he believes the Lord. And God credits him With righteousness. He's justified by his faith. And that story is years before Genesis 22. When Abraham ascended Mount Moriah with Isaac. Now at this point, maybe you studied God's word. And you're starting to wonder, okay, well hold on though. Doesn't James appeal to Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac as a key moment in his justification? Yes, he does. James 2, verses 22 to 24 reads, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And we have to make sense of James' statements in order to appreciate what Paul is saying here. Now, the last thing I want to do is just dismiss James 2. Hey, that's no big deal. Nothing to see here. Don't just move along. Don't ask me about James 2. The, the problem is, if we were to give a thorough explanation of James 2, well, that's that's the rest of our time this morning. And I do want to keep going through Romans. So here's what I'll do. Here's what I think is the key to making sense of James 2. And you can go home. You can read the passage. You can see if this key unlocks the door of making sense of James 2. And I also know the adult Sunday school class looked at this text recently. So maybe you've already had some exercise in this field. But listen to James 2.14. James asks, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And I think that, I think the key is that phrase, can such faith save them? Can faith such as this, a faith that makes claims but has no deeds, can that kind of faith save anyone? And that's exactly, by the way, how the NLT translates it. Can that kind of faith Save anyone. And James goes on to give a long but direct answer. Not at all. And then he appeals to Abraham offering Isaac as a work that demonstrates faith. Or a work that proves faith. And so what I would submit to you is Abraham's obedience is not that which justifies him. You shouldn't even say that it completes his justification. Rather, it's the essential proof of justifying faith. And I don't think that's squeezing James into Romans. I think that's making sense of what James was trying to do. He was trying to address a specific kind of faith claim and say that claim is bankrupt. Faith justifies, but such a faith will never be Without works. You could even say, considering those verses we read, Abraham was considered righteous in the eyes of others by what he did, rather than through faith. Faith is unseen. can't justify you in the sight of others, but it will justify you in the sight of God. So I think that's the point that James is trying to make. And thus, Paul is not taking shots at that idea, but rather arguing against the Jews in his day that understood Abraham's faith really as a form of obedience, a work with which God rewarded Abraham. And Paul says, no, let's go back and read Abraham's story. And let's notice how important it is that we get the events in the right order. Abraham was considered righteous before he offered Isaac. And that means no one, not Abraham and not anyone else, can boast about their deeds. So friends, fellow Christians, no matter how long we've walked with God, no matter how much you've grown in grace, essential good things, 
But no matter how far down that path you get, we never get to the point where we can boast in our obedience as if that gives us a right standing with God. And so when you think about your Christian story, maybe when you tell someone else your Christian story, you want them to hear that story. You want them to know that the Lord is good. You want them to get saved. Then tell your story and put all the emphasis not on what you do for God, but on what God has done for you. Because the basis of our story is that, what Christ has done for us. So if Abraham can't do enough to boast, well, neither can you. Let's not fall in this trap of thinking, oh, I've got this Christian system you know, figured out. I, I do all that must be done. No, we never boast in our deeds. So secondly then, here's the other side of that equation. Do not despair about your sin. If we shouldn't boast about our deeds, how should we think about our sin? What lens do we use when thinking about our sins? Again, we use the lens of the gospel. That's exactly what we see God doing in these next verses. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now, in verses 4 through 8, Paul somewhat pauses the discussion about Abraham in order to explain the mechanics of how justification works. But it's not a total pause, because he'll refer to David in the next verse, and that's going to make a subtle historic point. But, But just notice first the very simple truths he lays down. In verses 4 through 5, if you work hard, if you do your job, to quote Bill Belichick or the Patriots, if you do your job, you earn a wage. And when you go and pick up that paycheck or you see that money in your bank account, now you don't think, oh, thank you for that gift. You are so kind. No, you say, I have earned my paycheck. I did the work. I I agreed to the terms and met the terms of the obligation, and there's my paycheck. It better not be late. On the other hand, when it's your birthday... And someone hands you a gift, you don't say, yeah, that's what I thought. I mean, at least you better not, okay? Uh, call me if that happens. But, no, you appreciate the gift. You recognize, I didn't do anything to earn this other than be alive, other than have a birthday. Well, that's how it works in salvation. We cannot earn righteousness. But God is pleased to credit righteousness to us when we believe. And that's the process that Paul explains in verses 6 through 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. This is how the mechanics work. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It's a double work. When you place faith in Jesus Christ, God forgives your sins. He no longer credits them to your account. And furthermore, he credits Christ's righteousness to you. And so God can declare you to be righteous. And not by throwing justice out the window. No, but by crediting our sins to Christ who pays for them and then crediting his righteousness to us, clothing us in the righteousness of his son. And then here's where Paul works in the historical angle. Notice how he introduces the psalm citation in verse 6. David says the same thing. 
So we've got Abraham saved by faith before he was circumcised, before he offered Isaac, before God even gave the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai, justified by faith. Now David, on the other hand, well, he would have been circumcised as a baby. He would have grown up under the law. We know David has many exemplary deeds, David and Goliath, and on and on from those records in the Old Testament. But how was David forgiven his sins? By resting in the promises of God. And just notice how happy he is in these verses. Oh, how blessed is the person whom God doesn't credit their sin against them, to whom God credits righteousness. He is genuinely happy because he has forgiveness and justification by God's mercy. The law didn't change how God justifies sinners. And that's why I'm saying in the second idea, we should not despair about our sin. Abraham was a model of obedience, but he also committed many sins. David is a hero of the faith, but he committed some serious sins. So in the end, how did God view them as justified sinners? That's why verse 5 says, God justifies the ungodly. It is not the healthy that need a physician but the sick. And at the end of the day, the overall verdict that stands over Abraham and David is not, hey, overall, they were good guys. They did enough. But nor is it, wow, they really dropped the ball. The verdict over them is they were righteous by faith. And what that means for you is you need to read your story through that lens. And not as a cover for your sin. Paul will go on. He'll make that point very clear later. But if you are repenting, if you are believing, then God's verdict over you is righteous. And that's the truth you'll need to remind yourselves of daily. So maybe you just struggle with messing up. Maybe you feel like you are just a bother to your family and your friends. That is not how God sees and speaks of his children. You are God's child by faith. And on that basis, on that basis, you can seek to obey your heavenly father. So maybe you just need to come to terms with the fact that God saves sinners. Sinners like Abraham and David, not righteous people. That's how God marks his people by faith alone. And so lastly, we come to the conclusion, the third idea, rejoice in your standing in Christ. Paul asks an insightful question in verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Does a person have to undergo circumcision and submit to the law in order to experience these blessings? I mean, after all, Abraham did eventually receive circumcision. He did obey the law. So in what state was he when God justified him? Well, once again, Paul makes a big deal out of the chronology, the order of the Genesis account. Verse 10 reads, Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. The fact that Abraham was credited with righteousness means that his later works, they did not contribute to his justification. 
And that may leave us asking that, okay, well, what, you know, what is the point then of the circumcision and the law? I mean, why go do any of that if at the end of the day it's faith? Because all those things, primarily circumcision though, bear witness to God's promises in the gospel. And they remind you of who you are in Christ. Look at verse 11. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And maybe you recognize some of that sign and seal language from our confessional statements when they speak about sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's table. God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed those promises. And then to confirm their reliability, God gave him a confirming pledge, a token, a sign, but a sign with a promise in the rite of circumcision. Through that sign, God would remind Abraham, Abraham, this is what I will do for you. Claim you for myself. Claim your descendants for myself. Give you a new heart. That's how later Old Testament literature comments on circumcision. And that sign should strengthen your faith. You should see the sign, and it should remind you of my promises, and it should strengthen your faith. And then, the great next step, Abraham, now, you believed first and got the sign, but now you give the sign to all of your descendants, and it will call on them to exercise faith in God's promises. It will offer to them the gospel, and it will remind them of all that is available to them as true members of the covenant community. And then the result will be this worldwide family of faith, made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe God's promises in the gospel. That's the end of the passage. I'll read these verses last, uh, midway through verse 11. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He is the father of all true Israelites, all who believe the gospel whether they're circumcised or they're uncircumcised. Because at the end of the day, God's people are known to God, not primarily by what they do or how they look, but by their faith in his promises in the gospel. And whatever God gives us in the church and in sacraments, they're wonderfully valuable because they remind us of our standing in Christ. So friends, read your life story through the lens of the gospel and do it by rejoicing in Jesus Christ. It's not based on external signs. It's not based on what you do. It's based on the righteousness of Christ credited to you and received by faith alone. On our own, we only have sin credited to us. But Christ, the faithful Israelite, obeyed in our place, paid for our sins on the cross. And that's why Jesus would sometimes say when he healed people, go... And sin no more. It was sin that got us into this mess in the first place. And I'm not saying all those sick and injured people in the Gospels, that they were sick because of their sin. 
I'm saying the general picture is that God's creation is wrecked by sin. But God is putting his creation back together. That starts with forgiveness. It leads to a new creation in which all sin and sickness and disease is put away with and dealt away with. But the basic fact is, if there was no sin, there would be no damage. So when you become a part of God's creation, when you receive his spiritual healing by faith, go and sin no more. You're no longer enslaved to that old creation wrecked by sin. No, you're in a new creation. It's begun in your heart. So go and rejoice in holy living because you have a holy status. Go live the new life of obedience because Jesus broke sin's power over you. And don't boast in your deeds and don't despair over your sin, but rejoice in your standing in Christ. That's how you read your story, through the lens of the gospel. So let's pray and give thanks. Lord God in heaven, thank you for Jesus Christ crucified for us. And make us zealous, I pray, for good deeds like Abraham. Oh, to be able to look back on a life lived with such faith and obedience, trusting you even in the face of ultimate sacrifice. Make us zealous for good deeds. And Father, forgive us of our sins. Oh, how Abraham, with such faith, didn't have it when he was in Egypt, lied about his own wife. Lord, forgive us of when we have sinned against you and strengthen our faith. And thank you then that by Christ we are righteous by faith and not rewarded for what we do and not condemned for what we not don't do, but in Christ, justified. So give us the grace we need today, how Uh, The men and women of this church need your grace. Please give us that grace so we can build our lives on the foundation of the gospel. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.